Hello, and welcome to the Books That Fill Me podcast. I'm Helen Brocklebank, and in a special series to run alongside the recordings of the salons, journalist and fellow bibliophile Alex Peake Tonkinson and I will talk about book genres and their appeal. In our first episode, inspired by recent books that built me guest Emma Bennington, we're exploring memoir. Is it, as 16th century divine William Perkins said, a narrow examination of thyself and the course of thy life, or a story from a life? And when does the drive for a strong narrative mean that memory becomes so blurred as to become invention? As with James Frey's notorious memoir, turned literary forgery, A Million Little Pieces. Hello, Alex. Hello, Helen. Nice to see you. (laughs) Should we start by talking a little bit about We'll Always Have Paris, Emma Bennington's book? Yes. I just wanted to ask you why you thought that it had such a wide appeal. Well, I think that it's quite a common urge amongst us Brits to want to be French and that is something that she explores but she goes beyond that and I think always the strength of a memoir is two things really it's it's voice and it's honesty and those kind of things are connected and she's incredibly brutal about herself and I think that creates a very coherent narrative and that's important you know so picking up, so that's it's interesting you say that about honesty. Is that honesty and that ability to peel back the layers of yourself and and leave it and you know, put it there in the pages of a book? Is that what characterises a strong a strong memoir? I think it has to be plausible. I think that's what's important. Part of me doesn't necessarily care that much if a memoir's true. I want a story that feels. Um, plausible and believable and coherent and um so a memoir really needs to do that but I think within that you need a you know a degree of emotional honesty in the same way that you do with any kind of serious writing I think so an authenticity of a voice yeah I mean I think we just I mean I was going through the Amazon list for want of a better one of the best-selling memoirs um and when you discount all the celebrity ones Kathy Retzenbrink's uh, and uh, Matt Haig's books, who both, I mean, they, they, when did they publish? And they feel like they published two years ago? No, maybe a year ago. I think ago. Kathy's book was last year, in The Last yeah, Act of Love. Last Act of Love. The book about her brother. And Matt Haig's Reasons to Stay Alive could conceivably have been 2014. Because um, they both, I mean, they're both in, I think, the number six and number seven, respectively. And they they feel like they've really really hit a nerve, and that that's something. I mean, both of them have that very very or honest, authentic uh, voice, but also this idea of how memoir is the is the is the private made personal and then universal. Um, and I mean, so Kathy, tell you've read. I mean, I'm I feel terrible. I have not read Kathy Bretton Brinks. A book because I thought I might find it a bit painful, which is no reason at all to not read a book. But you've read it. What did you think of it? I think its honesty is really important. She's um, she's very harsh on herself. She talks a lot about her own, the impact of to her brother. Just I think just after he did his A levels, was knocked down um, by a car and never really woke up again, and he was kept alive for, um, by the family for a good few years, and the book is really about that but she talks about the impact of it on her own mental health and how um she had to kind of rebuild her own adult life for this incredibly 
crucial time, it is quite concise and I think that's important as well because obviously it is a distressing subject. So the cleanness of the prose, the fact that it's very tight is important. You know, feel that she's wallowing in it and she's quite forensic about what's happened to her and I think that's really important as well. I think also there is something about our culture where we're all grasping for something that feels real. That's part of the appeal. Yeah. Um, you know, there's so there's a lot of these kind of reality TV stars who are fi- you know, providing a kind of simulacrum of reality. And actually, that means there's a, this huge appetite and hunger for um, something that is truly resonant. And I think that's one of the reasons behind the appeal of these books. I don't know. Well, I mean, it does. It does feel. It does feel like the the last. I mean, there are a few. There are a few successful genres within genres, aren't there? With mem- with memoir, and the last few years does feel like the or- the memoir of the ordinary person is has 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 really come to the fore. I don't know whether that's true. Probably now, I think somebody's going to tell me that there's a rash of seventeenth century memoirs that were all about really, really ordinary people doing <laughs> exceptional things. But I mean, but thinking about Kathy Retzenberg again, maybe it's about uh, maybe the secret of a good memoir is, is to have that, obvious, to be able to establish incredible empathy with your reader, but maybe do the, does the reader need to say there, but for the grace of God, go I? No, not necess- necessarily. And um, this comes into the distinction between autobiography and memoir. And I think this is the reason why there's an appetite now for Emma Beddington's book, is that in the past there was a lot of interest in autobiography so very young footballers like Wayne Rooney um, wrote their what well, allegedly wrote in that case um, Hunter Davies actually wrote it but you know um, published their autobiographies kind of in their 20s because they had various achievements a memoir doesn't really rely on anything um, on you necessarily having achieved anything or anything happening to you it really is about voice I think voice is, is a crucial mm. thing with memoir and creating a moment, a moment that a, a snapshot of something that's particularly happened. I mean, obviously, with Kathy Retzenbrink, it's the, um, the awful accident that happened to her brother, and then his subsequent the subsequent decision to allow him to die. And with Emma, it's this uh, fabulous and kind of bonkers and understandable desire, really, to be French. Because who hasn't sat there in as a teenager and looked at a Gene Seberg film and gone? Oh, how lovely to be this chic, gulwar-smoking, stripy t-shirt-wearing, cool chick around town. And then, of course, she, you know, what's what I love about her is that it becomes much darker than that. And it's a case of be careful what you wish for. You know, you have to, if you want to be somebody else, maybe what you need to learn is that what you you have to find out who you really, who you really are in the process of trying to be somebody else. That's the lesson that I think I took out of that book. She was interesting because she chose. I mean, of the six, I mean, she used six books at the books that built me, hmm. and she three of those were were memoirs. So, memoirs of a dutiful daughter, which is a succession of Simone de Beauvoir memoir. Davis, what do you call the Davis of Sidaris and memoir? We talk pretty one day. It's more autobiographical sketches. Yes, I think. It, uh, I haven't read it to be honest. Oh, you're um, missing it. You're I really <laughs> excellent. I feel I must press it on you immediately. Okay. You're not the first person to suggest well, that. Well, I hadn't read it until uh, until Emma chose it okay. actually, and it's a treat. He's very very funny, and it's a series of. It's quite sketchy. I mean, it is autobiographical, but the second half of it, which is what we focused on for her books that built me, is about him 
suddenly becoming seized with a, a desire to live somebody else's life in Normandy. He finds his boyfriend. He, he has a house in Normandy and all you can hear is, I've got a house in Normandy, I've got a house in Normandy. And, he, and, off, and off he goes. And, and, he's learned, and he learns the language, gets the language school, so there's lots of humour in that. So it's very funny. And then Patrick McGuinness, which is uh, Other People's Countries, which is, I suppose, a, also quite snapshotty, but about his... Um, his grandparents who came from a small town in Belgium. Uh, where was I going with that? I've got no idea. I was just going to well, no, I think you kinds were... of different kinds of memoirs. Yeah, and talking about the influences on Emma's book and maybe the, the things that made her feel that she could write a memoir. And also, I think another obvious comparison is with um, Nina Stibby's first book, Love Nina, which is a collection of letters. And yeah, the epistolary memoir. Yeah. So I can't. There must be others, but I. But that was just joyous absolutely and um i think it's the kind of book you you can't really explain to other people you just need them to read it in order to realize how kind of funny and charming and worthwhile it is but at the same time admittedly nina was encountering people like alan bennett and jonathan miller in her social circle but she was a nanny you know nothing really extraordinary was going on and i think um she's utterly made a case for a book about a relatively ordinary life yeah. you know that is still compelling and well, it's about your point about voice isn't it and how how he how that drives your relationship with that how it drives the drives the memoirs appear it's about it's about the voice and she's got such a distinctive voice yeah why then having stuffed off with memoirs she did has have her subsequent novels as a man at the helm and paradise lodge why have why has she then moved into fiction i'm not sure they're very autobiographical aren't they and what's they the difference between are, memoir and... and they do um in a sense they're a trilogy so man at the helm is about her childhood paradise lodge is kind of her as an adolescent and then love nina the memoir which came first um is uh about when she left home and became a nanny i'm not sure the reasons i do know that nina tried for years to write quite serious novels about subjects quite remote from her she thought that was a more worthy subject for literature and um the memoir actually kind of happened by accident which is an interesting idea that you know you might be reaching for the right subject matter and in fact it's just under your nose i mean it's quite it is I find the idea of memoir quite confining in a way because you—I mean, I know Emma really well, so it's interesting having talked to her in the, during the process of her writing that memoir. So you need to find a convincing narrative arc for the particular snapshot of your life you want to tell. But then you've got lots of other people—you're telling other people's stories as well, aren't you? So how do you, how do, you, how do, how do memoirists manage that? They're, their stories are not always their own. They've all they've got their own is their own perspective. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I'm not sure. I think it's incredibly dicey. Um, and in fact, actually, um, I interviewed DBC Pierre this week, and he says that's the reason he's not written his memoir. I'm not sure. I entirely believe him, but he says that there are too many people who are identifiable, and you know, it's not his right to tell their stories. But would he tell it in? So then, might he tell it in fiction? I mean, he's. I mean, he's, he's most famous for his fiction. The, I mean, the latest book's a book about writing, isn't it? But he's... Yeah, and actually in, in the book about writing, he does weave a lot of um, quite tantalising glimpses of his memoir into it. 
No, I think one day he will write a, a memoir, and I think we should all look forward to it. But I, I think there's the beauty of the genre that it really, more than anything, it's flavoured by the character of the writer. So you've got Gillian Slavo wrote a memoir about her mother's murder, which is a brilliant book, and obviously that's going to be very different from a comic memoir about being a kind of sort of nineteen-year-old nanny in Camden. Um, and I and yeah, I think that that both those things are worthwhile. And Julian Slavery said something that's been really interesting about writing memoirs. She said that you have to start off writing the whole truth, you know, and if you need to research the truth, then you should do that. And then once you've done it and you can see it as a whole, you then cut back from that. Um, and I think that's slightly different from an autobiography, I guess, an autobiography. You maybe wouldn't feel you have such control over the shape. You maybe feel that you have to show kind of a fuller story. Yeah, I mean, I, that's. I think that's a really that's a really interesting approach, isn't it? So writing writing everything and then and then going through a pro, going you know, going back through a process of what to take out. So about editing, editing out the story that you can't you don't you can't really, you can't really tell because it doesn't belong to you. Yeah, and Blake Morrison has talked about this as well because I think in um, when last did you see your father? His memoir, um, he realizes with doing research that his father's had an affair. And he writes to the woman in question and says, I want to know if I've got a half-sister, I want to know about this affair. And she tells him to back off. And he does. Your duties to other people do, imp- do impinge on your writing. We have to be aware that it's not, that I suppose, that it's not, your, it's not always your story. But in going back to autobiographical fiction, like Nina Stibbian's... Um, I was thinking about Hanif Qureshi because he's... His, I mean, Buddha of Suburbia was very, very autobiographical. And his sister, I think, got got quite enervated about it, and he he has this expression: "The past is a playground, and your your past is belongs to you." And it's of course, you know, you're seeing it through a particular lens. It's of course going to be very different from your from your sister. I think his point was that they just have to get over it. Um, and I think you can do that with fiction. You can get away with it much less in memoir, maybe. What I wanted to ask you about were were whether you were aware of any trends in publishing that where's memoir going next if you like so celebrity celebrity memoirs big Charlie Redmayne and who's the CEO of HarperCollins mm. published a lot of celebrity memoir famously said I think about it two months ago celebrity memoirs dead we're not doing it anymore and certainly not paying those really big advances mm. probably because they didn't have anybody like Cheryl Cole or Alex Ferguson I think sold 2000 a day each oh, really something. can you imagine can you imagine Cheryl Cole presumably ghost written no offense, Cheryl Cole. Yeah. Uh, autobiographies. <laughs> Can you imagine going to buy that? It's pretty crazy. I mean, I love Cheryl Cole. I think she's great, yeah, but I don't want to read, read her. Yeah, I don't want to read exactly. her memoir. It's like my life on the X Factor. <laughs> yeah. Um, how intriguing. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I, and Alex Ferguson. Presumably, he's, you know, if you're a fan of football, he's the most gripping man you could read, but it's whatever. And, you know, and I suppose the blogger thing has, has, kind, of, has kind of passed. And Kathy is not a blogger, she and Matt, they belong to that more conventional mem- memoirist. I noticed a trend for the kind of nature nature memoir. Does that? Yeah, so definitely with Helen MacDonald's book, Hatches for Hawk, um, it was an enormous success. And there seem to be, I mean, I feel like there are a lot in that 
there were a lot of others in that. Yes, and I think also slightly instructive memoirs as well. So Catla Moran, in a way, and um, How to Be a Woman, yes, which is isn't instructive and very memoir. I mean, it isn't. It's a memoir, isn't it? Yeah. So she takes instance from her life and then manages to talk about. So you know. Uh, she had an abortion, so she then talks. She talks about her experience of it, and then talks about the wider issue of that. And I think it's very effective. And Cheryl Sandberg's um, "Lean In," and I think um, Michelle Hussein, the um, Radio Four Today program presenter, I think we're yeah, expecting a, yeah. a book from her in that vein. And it's I, very kind of service. What we would call in magazines a service-led feature. So you've got a lot, a lot of instruction. You've got a lot of uh, reader takeouts. Um, yeah. based on somebody's life experience and I, th- I think that's quite helpful I think it's an interesting development because actually I think so for example a book like Slipstream Emma Jane Howard's memoir it could also be viewed in as self-help because she led an incredibly rich life and she obviously learned a lot from it and that to me I would think of that as a more helpful book than um, you know a very obvious kind of tome of self-help so it's interesting that well, the, yeah. Although that's, I mean, that's that's much more conventionally constructed, isn't it? As a in a much more literary way. I mean, it, it's really, it's really. One, my, I have to say, one of my favourite favourite memoirs. Whereas those, um, I've got to think of a. We've got to think of a sexy. There must be a sexier term than service led memoir, instructive, instructive memoir. I think that I think they're quite helpful. I think they need to be. I think the writing needs to be um, have kind of top tips at the end of every chapter. In a in a way. I mean, the Joe Malone one that I've just been reading that's coming out in October is is like an instruction book for entrepreneurs. She's she sets this business up in her um, front front room, pretty much, or kitchen, with a couple of pots and pans and some essential oils. And her husband really believes in her, and then she sells. It grows from there, and it's really beautiful, with amazing clients. And she sells it to Estee Lauder, and then goes through. Um, you have a whole narrative, but what you know, what an entrepreneur, what a self-taught entrepreneur needs to remember for it. I found it very not inspiring, but I find it very useful. The life lessons of somebody else. I found there's lots of practical advice in there. Yes, and it's a very generous thing to do in a way. To kind of um... yeah, to kind of share it. The other one I've just read recently, which isn't really a memoir. I mean, it's, it's Julia Hobsbawm's book, which came out with from Bloomsbury in I'm going to say April next year. Um, and it's called Fully Connected, How to Survive and Thrive in an Age of Digital Overload. And she's the Cass Business School Professor of Networking. So my assumption was that it was going to be quite a straightforward business book. Hmm. You know, but it's but it's not. That also is quite memoiry. She uses her she blends her personal experience in with kind of big macro business stuff about where we are with the age of digital overload um and then also puts in instructions for use if you like how to, how to actually survive it it's quite it's a really it's a really interesting mashup of different kinds of genre but you could possibly put it in a, a memoir box yeah it's kind of that development's quite surprising isn't it because i think even say 15 years ago um people who are now writing memoirs would have been encouraged to tell their stories as novels and I think that's what Blake Morrison said at the time when he wrote his book even though the kind of confessional strand stretched back to kind of St Augustine that we've now come that that much further along that even instruction manuals sort of we need them framed Mm. as 
memoir. I mean, is that back? Is that back to the building of empathy and authenticity and honesty? That's at the core. I think of the... so. Yeah, I think it can be really wonderful. I think some, you know, some of my favourite books are memoirs. Um, so I think it can only be a good thing if there's going to be more of them. Yeah, I know. well, it's well. I mean, as you say, Saint Augustine invented it. No, it sounded. But he's the he's the point everybody says is the first uh, the jump off point for memoir, isn't he? And then you get into well, we, then we can stray into things like confessional journalism. I've just listened to a great podcast about the uh, Fitzgerald's crack up, let which is which are three. I find essays. that a deep, deeply painful book to read. I find it absolutely heartbreaking it is, it how really much is. he suffered. Yeah, and it's it's very it feels very raw. But sorry, but it is. But I mean, he's even he died at forty one, didn't he? So he didn't live long enough to to write a memoir. So I guess we should we should probably wrap this up. Let's close by be putting you right on the spot and saying your top three. What are your top three memoirs? Okay, you know this is agony, but I was going <laughs> to And if you ask me tomorrow, I'll have another top three. But I think um, probably the first one I'm going to choose is Anne Frank's Diary, which I probably read before I was even aware of the word genre. I would never have put it in a memoir box, but of course it is. Yeah, and, it's, um, and you forget what an extraordinary writer she was. And how she's managed to crystallise something incredibly important. And um, it's made me think far more about the Holocaust than all the kind of other history books that I've read. And it's just so hugely, wonderfully influential. So I think that has to go in there. And then um, I think Bad Blood by Lorna Sage. Yeah, who of course, wonderful. Yes, who taught me at university. Yeah, you love the woman. I was taught much more by her ex-husband because my thing was the Victorian Gothic and... Oh, so is that Victor Sage? Oh, Victor Sage, who I loved passionately. They were quite... I mean, they, they really fascinating, their relationship in that book, actually. Yes. Um, I quite want to read it again. It's so, so brilliant. And I think that's the first book that I read as an adult that really made me think, wow, um, this memoir genre is really something, you know. And hers, in some ways, was a relatively ordinary life as well, but she made it sound so full of passion and so dramatic. And then I think the third one I'm going to choose is Elizabeth Jane Howard for her um, unwavering honesty. And when I met her towards the end of her life, she said that um, that she decided at the age of 40 to be very honest with herself. And she seemed incredibly happy because of that. I yeah. thought there was quite a lesson in that. It is, I mean, it's, it's beautiful. One of the things I loved about Slipstream I mean, yes, the honesty, and she's terribly hard on herself, and she's so self-deprecating that you, you, you feel that really how extraordinary not to be that amazing a writer and that, and to mix with those people and to be all the incredible things that she was, and yet to not feel so obviously not feel very good about herself a lot of the time. No, um, she said she was a very slow learner, and so that she kept making the same mistakes, not least I think with men. Um, yeah, right. but yes. she seemed yeah. to come to terms with it. And King's Amos was, she she did pick, yeah, terrible. I mean, Peter Scott sounded the, completely the wrong husband and very much the wrong mother-in-law. And, yes, uh, and uh, Kingsley Amos. And, so. and then the con man towards the end. Oh, I know, I um, know. But what I loved actually, what I loved about that was I'm guessing. I guess he's off the subject, really, but I'm not doing a very good job of closing us down. One of the things I loved about Slipstream was that suddenly I realised the castlets were all real. Yes. I mean, it's like quite a lot of that mem- memoir is 
is the non-fiction version of the Caslets. Yeah, no. I kind of like that a lot. I mean, the beginning of it is exquisite. The only thing I thought was it did, as she as she kind of moves forward through her life, the the writing changes. I'm not saying that that's a that's a bad thing, but that front section is is just almost worth reading on its own. The first hundred pages, I suppose. Did you do you remember that that the prose is so rich and vivid? It's and also really fascinating because it's a time I didn't really know about yeah, being exactly. a kind of Edwardian schoolgirl, you know. And I um, suppose with a distance of memory, I mean, she's right. She finished. When did she write the Slipstream? She's relatively. She's in her seventies, isn't she? she I think so. So I suppose with the benefit, you know, you have to fill in a lot of the gaps because you're if you're going to write about when yourself when you were five and your parents, then probably not going to remember it that well. I can't remember. I don't know. I, I do think there is something that you you start to remember your childhood very clearly. But anyway, we so need your my, top okay, three. My, my yeah. top three. Uh, Hemingway's A Movable Feast, which is. I think strays very much into that slightly James Frey territory of of what's made up and what's not made up. He writes that at the ab- the very end of his life, it's wonderful. It's about his time in Paris in the twenties and the kind of the glamour of um, always tapping up the lady at Shakespeare and Co for a, for a few quid and um, hanging out with Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Topless and his poor long-suffering wife and he always seems to be leaving the baby on his own in the flat which slightly worries <laughs> me and uh, um, my favourite writer of all time Paul Maddox Ford uh, being a smelly old bloke um, oh I didn't know that he was smelly how funny he... and Fitzgerald coming to him and, and saying I really need some advice about sex Hemingway because obviously you're better at it because you're a man of the world and of course by this time Paul Fitzgerald is well dead Hemingway's reputation is slightly waning, but Fitzgerald's posthumous reputation is really gaining traction. So, so the part of the appeal of that memoir is not just the the beautiful writing, because it is beautiful and uh, all the things that you want, it can be honesty and um, it's how qualified the authenticity is. Because I kind of wonder, it's a lot about his own. Right, rewriting his own past in a way that feels very... So it, does it feel that he possible. had scores to settle? I feel it does. He did have scores to settle. Okay. I mean, I'm not sure that it's really necessary to talk about how smelly uh, <laughs> Ford-Maddox Ford was. <laughs> and, uh, and maybe that's because I really like Ford-Maddox Ford. I don't know. Robert Gray's Goodbye to All That is is astonishing, particularly... I mean, it's you know, it talks about big big stuff like the First World War, but it's really, really good. It's so, it's so long since I read it, I've... I feel that it's there in my memory for as a my top three mem my one of my top three memoirs for a reason, but I couldn't add, pick out something mm. specific like I can with Hemingway. And then uh, my family and other animals, which I haven't really thought about as a memoir, but of course it is. I mean, it, it's a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant memoir because it's funny and Gerald Durrell is and his entire family up sticks from Bournemouth or somewhere very random and go and live in Corfu, and it's glorious and. Yes, I haven't the, read it. So. It's so wonderful. I mean, it's real. It's, I know it's probably not your kind of thing, but if you were ever stuck with it and you had nothing else to read, I, it's really rewarding. It's very funny. And you can see the the genesis of the, you know, botanist, I suppose, you know, the animal man he was later on. Zoologist, that's the word I was struggling with. <laughs> God, on, on, that that, on that note. On that note. I think we'll think what we're going to come back to next time. Yes, absolutely. Anyway, thank you. That was really fab. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Next time. <laughs>